Hey, Fungo Banner fans, we're back with another episode of your Pacific Northwest Fungo Banner podcast. Eric Sorensen's still here in uh, Big Country Studios here in Ellsworth, Washington. Guys, I hope you, if you have not listened to last week's episode, you need to go there because that's part one of this one. Uh, we were, we had such a good recording with Coach Fergus, Donegal Fergus, hitting coordinator for the Minnesota Twins. We had to break this thing up into two great episodes. Uh, so please go back, listen number one. And if you listen number one, you know how great this was. Or is it's already like there's the buildup of this one is just amazing. So I hope you enjoyed the last one. You're going to enjoy the next one. Here is the part of the interview where we break down hitting and get to pick his brain on what it's to be a hitting coordinator and developing young hitters. For those of you that don't know yet, the official fungo of the Pacific Northwest Fungo Banner podcast, Devo Bats. Go to devobats.com. The swag, the gear, the stuff that we get hooked up with. Safeguard out of the Tri-Cities. Give Dave Cruz and a call there. Great stuff. Quality product. Good customer service. Check them out. And we also got Shirtworks here in town. Here in Ellensburg, they did the silhouette shirt and the silhouette hat. So, guys, get your pen and paper out. You hitting coaches out there. If you've heard him talk, you know he knows what he's talking about. So, without further ado... Let's bring on coach. Well, let's dive into some hitting here. Okay. uh, Let's see what's first on the, on the docket, but. You've been at a lot of places, Ferg, between the NWAC and, and D3 and Pac-12, Big West, professional baseball. Where do you see the differences in hitters right now um, but between those levels and, and what maybe can each level understand or learn about that kind of progression as a hitter um, to, to become their best selves in the box? I think the biggest thing that I've realized over the years is hitters are like, if you look at our, our players that we have here in St. Paul and they are guys that have played professional baseball for, you know, a couple of them for almost 10 years, their swings look pretty similar to their swings at 14. Like there's differences, but you can see it in there. You're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I see the connection there. I see, I see the similarities. You can see of that swing at a pretty early age. The difference is they are just so much better at taking that, that A swing, the best version of that, every single time. You know, you don't see our guys take really jacked up swings very often. You know, today they did. They, we had one of our, our big boys going 97 to 100 with a splinker at 94, and there were some awkward swings. <laughs> but for the most part, they're taking the pretty good swing almost every time. And it doesn't mean that a high school kid can't take just a perfect A swing, run one out of the yard, and you're like, yeah, that guy's a player. That guy's really good. Now, if you could do it every time or more often, he could access that swing. He would be an elite player. I think that's the challenge is we so want to fix the thing that we, we forget that it's just not how it works. Like very few guys are a you know, more polished product at a younger age. So – you're, you'll have high school kids that you're, you say, well, they're not there yet. Well, yeah, it's okay to not be there yet. Let's continue to push them to take more of their good swings in, in a BP session. And okay, and then this weekend in the games, let's see if we can take out of six at-bats, let's maybe see if we can take three really good at-bats as opposed to just one. We're like, man, the potential is there. He's just not, you know, he's not doing it all the time. How many times has that been said? You know, I think that's the, the biggest thing is players are always evolving. And as they get, they climb the levels and they get to the big leagues, those guys take their best swing. They're just so good at it. Their, their brain and their body are so connected that they take their, their really good swing all the time. And I think just remembering that along the way is, is as important as anything. It's easy to get frustrated. And I certainly did uh, over the years with guys who are just like, what is that? Like, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. You know, you just want to yell at them. And that's why we get mad as coaches because you're like, that's not what we practice. And they're like, I know, I don't know why I did it either. I just, <laughs> the bad swing. What, I don't know. My brain just spazzed out. That's part of it. I, I just think we forget that because we want them to be good. And we want to feel like we did our jobs and we got them where they needed to go. And if you realize you're just part of the, the journey and hopefully it's a long one and hopefully you are way at the front end of that journey because you're coaching them in high school, you're 
or, or junior college or, or even, you know, in the division one level, like hopefully you're just at the front end of their journey and, and not the one who fixed them. You know I mean? That feels tempting. You want to be their guy. Like who's the guy that made you the, the hitter you are? You're like, I'd like to be that guy, you know? And that's, that's your ego taking over, right? You want to be the guy who got them where they, they're going. This is not how it works, you know? It's just, they're going to have other good coaches along the way too if they keep playing. Um, you know, I, I had one of the best hitters I've ever coached is Nick Kales. JB, you know, Nick, um, he was playing, he, he's playing some independent ball right now because um, he wasn't chosen for the 60-man pool for the Brewers. So minor leaguers got released. They can go and play with independent league teams if they want to. So he signed up to go play and he was in St. Paul. And so we went and had lunch and, and chatted about his swing and we broke it down. And, you know, it just, I'm part of that again. And it was really cool. And it reminded me that I'm just a little, a little piece along the way. And he's been to a ton of different coaches and he's a really good player. And if you just remember that your, uh, your, your job is to keep them going and your job is to give them whatever advice and information and assistance that you can, but it's not you, right? It's not about you. Um, I think that keeps that perspective uh, in a good place and um, hitters are never done evolving. And, um, and I think that's what you've got to remember about the whole thing is the, the highlight the good stuff and focus on it and try and get it more and more and more. And if you can do that, then you're a pretty good hitting. I think the problem you talk about too, you've brought up a lot of good points is, is that as hitting coaches and, and you mentioned this, the old school mentality that I wanted to do it my way. You know, you get to a different level, whether that's high school to NWAC or NWAC to D1 or whatever it is, like you get to a new spot and want to do it my way. And I think what you brought up is that, is that guys you talk about now going back to 14 year old swings are pretty much the same, you know? So the hiccups along the way might've been occurring because they're doing things that are very unnatural to them. You know, so you talk about meeting with someone that you've worked with in the past, you're not meeting up for, for you to give him the newest and greatest thing to do. You're, you're there to be, bring him back to where he was with you, to, to bring him back to those attributes and those things that are natural to him because you got to see it over the course of period when he was going really well doing those natural things. It's such a great point, KG. And, and I, I think it's one of the most common conversations I have with, with hitters that I get to coach now is, is them bringing up, oh man, last June and July, I was locked in. Let's go look at that and see what, you know, because there's something there that they remember. Like I was, I was doing it right. I was consistent. I felt great. Like that was my best period. And they want to go back to that. And, and there's a reason that that's the case. That's their most natural state. It's their most heightened awareness and in, in, in their best version of themselves. So if, if, if I get, let my ego get in the way and, and I say, Hey, I don't like the way that looks. I don't like your leg kick or I don't like this that you do, or I haven't coached a guy that that works for, then you might be coaching him in or out of something that is really valuable for them and really works for them. And I think that the best coaches let the players guide them. And, and sometimes you do have to say, listen, I don't think that's going to work, man. I, I think that's going to be really difficult for you to manage. My opinion is that's counterintuitive to the way your body wants to work. I'm telling you from experience that I think this is a better route for you. And they have to do that but ultimately they have to decide that right and you know this when we work together we talk with hitters about this all the time it, it has to be our decision not my decision right if if i tell you to do this and you and it doesn't work you're blaming me right because i told you to do it and your subconscious is going to go well i didn't really want to do it that way mm -hmm. but if we make those decisions together if we say hey well, let's add a leg kick or let's get rid of a leg kick or let's Go to a toe tap or let's move our hands up. It needs to be together, right? That needs to be a collaboration because then the player has ownership over that process. And that's when the trust starts to build. And that's when then, you know, players get attached and they say, all right, this guy understands me. So I'm always going to have a spot for his advice because they understand the way that I work and the way my brain works and the way I'm comfortable and all of those sort of things. And I think that's, that's a really important way to look at your job as, as a hitting guy is, is to think about, facilitating their exploration of their own swing and their own process. That's, that was, that was so good to hear that. And we've had a couple of other guys say the same thing of, you know, every kid's got to work through their own way of how they can do things. There's not, we don't want a hundred robots running around doing the same thing. And you got to find each individual kid's personality in their swing and how things work for them. But what are some of the key components of the swing for you? 
you know, there are some things that have to happen to get this thing rolling. And what are some right. of the keys for you when you, you know, maybe getting the hitter on track or, or just getting someone going and hitting? I think, I think some natural balance and stability is a really, is a really good starting point. And I think that's going back to KG's question about what, what do I see the differences in hitters from, from, from when I first started coaching or coaching in junior college to, to coaching special hitters now our guys are stronger and they're more stable, right? So they're able to access that good swing more often because their body can control the, the process or the sequence and the movement better. When you're young, you just, you're not able to do that. It's why, it's why I really, I respect coaches who are coaching kids, like little kids, you know, from little league to, you know, maybe Babe Ruth, where you just go, hey, hard, have some intent, have some fun, let it go, no fear, just let your body sort of work it way through and you're going to live with some crazy swings probably but their bodies aren't yet to hold themselves in certain positions their bodies aren't stable enough to really repeat mechanics over and over again understanding that is a really is a really cool step in, i think in, in coaching is once you realize if we when their body is ready to create a stable base to start from now we can really do some stuff from a mechanical adjustment standpoint otherwise we're just we're putting band-aids on, on things before that. If, if, a, if a young kid is struggling with a leg kick um, and you're like, well, he needs to no stride because he just can't get on time with the leg kick. That might be true and it might fix it for a little bit, but ultimately he's leg kicking for a reason probably. His body wants to move and, and organize itself in motion. And, and some guys work really well that way. You need, they need to be in motion for their brains to sort of uh, organize itself. And other guys need to be quieter and to have more, but both of those are about stability. The brain craves stability. Your eyes are calm and your, and your head is calm because your feet have created a stable foundation. Then you can usually make some pretty good adjustments and that's when hand eye can take over and, 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 and the swing can work. So we always start from that standpoint. One of the, we do a lot of assessments in our strength, um, with our strength team about ankle stability, uh, um, T-spine, uh, rotational uh, ability and stability, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of different factors that go into that. Where they're strong and where they're weak, and then work with, with those things to get them in a place where their, their bodies can do, do some things. I think the feet are where I always start. If, if a guy has stable feet, you can get into a, a stable, stacked load position, then we can work from that. And some guys, you know, need uh, to counter-rotate. Some guys need to stack. Some guys need, you sort of need to preset them because they're not great movers and you need to make, you know, we, we have, we have probably two of the most extreme versions of that, that I've, I've ever coached. One of our guys, Xander wheel is literally his back foot faces almost straight back towards the umpire and his front foot faces almost straight back towards the umpire. So he's, he's like turned completely sideways, like he's hiding behind a, a light pole and it's the way he stacks and man, it works for him and he gets great direction and his bat works now. Um, he's got his vertical bat path is incredible now because he can, he can work in a straight line towards center field and he had to do it. He had to figure out that his feet needed to get turned completely. And then we have the complete opposite where we have a guy that's as pigeon toed as you possibly can be in his super Justin Turner move, you know, is super inward rotated, internally rotated on, on that, on that foot and lifts up and counter stacks and, and that just works for him. And it's way his body works to the center of his, of his, um, his mass. And I think that figuring out the way you can get a kid to really be stable is the first, first step. Then once you're stable, once the body knows that it's, <clears throat> excuse me, stable, then that's when rhythm and timing can start to, to, to appear. Otherwise, you know, I think you're always fighting yourself when you do that. You see guys that are really sway back and, and have a lot of unstable moves. Their timing is difficult because they're always trying to figure it out each time. If a guy has a really stable uh, base, their brain slows down because their eyes slow down and process information better. They're not in a state of panic and they can make a, a, a good move from there um, because they can develop that, that sense of time. Because now all they're really doing is just timing the ball, right? They figure out, oh, the pitcher does this. Oh, it feels like I need to, to get started, you know, when, when his leg is in the air or whatever it might be. Those are all individual traits that you can you can work through as you go, but you have to have that really stable base. So that's the thing that we, we really preach a lot of is stable foundational base so we can calm the brain down and then, and then being able to develop that, that rhythm and timing to dance with the pitcher. Um, and 
I think that we, we sometimes get this wrong. And I don't know if this is a mechanical thing to your question or not, but it's something that I really have grown to be convinced of is I think we a lot of times teach hitting backwards and the fact that we work out to in and then we, we teach a kid or go the other way, you know, because, um, you know, that's more, con I don't know, it's, it looks better to our eye, the fact that a kid can shoot a ball to right field from the right hand of batter's box or, you know, he's, it says something about his unselfishness or something. There's a lot of things wrapped up in that. But I think if we remember when we were young hitters, what's the scariest thing in hitting? It's an inside fastball, right? It's the hardest thing that I have to deal with. Like, nobody hasn't said, oh, that's easy. I don't, I don't worry about that at all. Like, no hitter has ever said that. They get to a point where they can say that, but that's not where they start, right? And we, we, if we work from there, so that's the most insecure we are about our swing is can I get to that pitch? Can I deal with that inside fastball if he throws it in there? If I know that I can do that because I'm stable and I'm stacked and I'm ready and I'm on time and I'm in a position of power to do that, the rest of it becomes easier to learn. It's much easier. I would rather take a guy who handles inside really well and teach him how to go the other way and add that piece to his game than the other way around than a guy who sprays it the other way but can't handle it in. I would... That, that's a more difficult challenge because there's some there's some brain and, and some neural processing challenges that go with that in, in space and time and creating the room out front to work. And I think that if we remember that, if we think about it in those terms of what what is the the hardest challenge in hitting is deciding to swing or not and where to swing. Right? It's it's that I don't know what pitch it is. I don't know where it's going. If we can make that easier, then we've got a chance. And that comes from the base and that comes from creating a, a, a posture and a, and a foundation where we are stable and we feel like we're powerful. You know, my, my mind's, as you were talking about that, you know, the, how we've always done things, you know, you're right. We've always learned, okay, we need to hit the ball the other way. And then, you know, we work on that, hitting the back up the middle and, and then but learn that inside pitch. I almost, what the question that's rolling through my mind is do you, and what I'm thinking the, the, the perks of that would be pitch recognition. That, you know, we have kids that are we're trying to teach them hit the other way. Well, they're just rolling over balls, trying to pull them on the outside. Well, maybe that's a way to teach them. Like, hey, this is the ball you hit inside. And then you can work your other way. I guess I'm speaking as I'm thinking and, and brainstorming here. No, you're Hopefully absolutely right. Because, yeah, because you think about what's what's the pitch that we have to identify the quickest? It's the inside pitch, right? right? Because we have less time. We have to hit it farther out front, right? And it's small. It's a small change. Like, it isn't like I, I know we all used to put the balls down and like, Oh, this is this is the inside pitch, and it's a straight line diagonally back over the plate. You don't actually hit it the away pitch out of on the plate. You don't actually do that, but your brain sort of thinks it does, right? There is a there is an inherent understanding of spatial awareness that our brain kind of needs to think that. It's why the term for the cue of let it travel or see it deep has come about. It isn't real. We don't want to actually see it deep, but our brain sort of needs to think that sometimes because we're making decisions that are so far out front. So if we can take away the panic decision of inside and we know how to handle that, the other stuff gets easier and we can slow that process down. Now recognition does become easier because we're not so nervous and so con conditioned to try and make that decision right away that we can slow the process down. So if we learn how to handle that inside route, and, and that's why I say, hey, pulling is not a bad thing. Like being a pull hitter is not inherently a negative thing or it shouldn't have some sort of connotation that it does. Like everybody gets excited about, oh, look at that guy. He goes the other way. He uses the whole field. Such an unselfish hitter. Like, oh, well, so smart. Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's good. But I bet you that guy handles inside pretty well too. Right. You know, I mean, I, I think it, it's because we can handle both sides of the plate. Those are the really good hitters. And we like that because it's, um, it, it tells you something about the hitter overall. Typically. But just because most everybody pulls there, like there's very few guys that genuinely do it best the opposite field. Like most everybody is generally speaking a, a better pull hitter. That's why we see so many shifts in Major League Baseball, right? Like almost everybody gets shifted now because that's where most guys hit it on the ground, especially is on the pull side. Um, so, uh, so if we could get better at that and that our, our challenge as an organization that we've talked about is I want our guys to be really good on the pull side. Like I want pull side elevation because that means that you got to the, that contact point. You worked, created room to work. And you put a good path on that. And we, if we are full side elevated with good angles and good authority, then we're going to be pretty good. And we're also going to be able to expand now across the plate because our, our panic 
hasn't set in and we make better decisions. We see the ball longer. We can read pitches better because we know how to get to that inside pass. If we are snap hooking and rolling over and panicky about that, we make poor decisions. We are even worse away because um, we're making decisions earlier. We're not letting the ball travel. Those are the balls that are outside and we hook roll because we're just swinging at them, right? So I really do. I think that if we can get better on that, we spend a ton of time on full pad elevation. And I, I will literally tell guys, and, and KG knows a couple of coaches that would want to have put earmuffs on right now about this, but I tell guys, hit it as high as you can on the full side. Like literally hit a pop-up to the third baseman. Hit as high a pop-up as you can, right? Well, I don't actually want them to do that, obviously. But what we're trying to do is create some vertical path and work inside that, right? And get to that ball so that you can start to learn how to create some backspin on the full side, right? Mm -hmm. How to create some line and some direction on the full side without topspin, without hook, without any of those smother you know, uh, swings that we take and, and understanding that it's a means to an end that we're, we do want to handle both sides of the plate at some point or the ability to do that. You don't typically do that. And especially in the professional level, you got to pick a side, but the ability to make that adjustment, to do it, if we can, to handle breaking balls, to handle elevated off speed, to handle multiple pitch locations. We want all of those things. You just have to start it at a place where it allows them to develop it. Kirk, I want to kind of shift a little bit to the big term that we hear a lot, the launch angle, you know, and it's stirred a lot of conversation for coaches and, and players. But I'd like to get a little bit of how you feel about the idea about the, the flight of the ball flight and how it should be defined for each individual hitter. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you can probably guess where I fall on this argument. I, I think it's <laughs> totally silly. I think it's just as dumb as we can yeah. get is that we have still have people fighting over this. Like I, somebody put a clip on Twitter the other day. It was some, I think it was a Dodger broadcast and it was a Mookie Betts homer to the opposite field. Right? And he's like, no launch angle there. And, and we're like, what are we doing? Like, are we that dumb? We're not that dumb. <laughs> like, of course the guy knows that, that there's a launch angle attached to that. But he's, he is willfully ignoring a term and, and willfully misrepresenting a term. That's what bothers me about this stuff. It's like, you have to be on one side of the fence or another. Like if I, if I've ever said launch angle to a player, then that puts me in this category over here that I, I don't like old school baseball or I'm, I'm ruining the game or something, or I don't value experience. Like it's such a straw man argument. It blows my mind. We're willfully ignoring what's, what's really happening, which is now we have a way to evaluate what's happening and quantify what's happening. It's, it's a good thing. I, and I will tell you this. I don't talk about launch angle with our players. I, I do not have that conversation. I do not tell them what their launch angles are. Now, a lot of them know it because we get TrackMan and RepSoto reports and, and, and all the data there. And some guys look at it and some guys don't. But nobody comes to me and says, hey, Ferg, um, you know, I thought my launch angles were, were cut off. <laughs> we don't talk about it. it, it nobody's going to the plate going, I'm going for 19 degrees here. <laughs> like, that's not an approach. It is just simply a way to measure what's happening so that we can find some patterns. Can address the fact that, and it is the same thing that we've always done. Like before we had all this stuff, we said, Hey, you're hitting too many ground balls, or you're hitting too many fly balls, or you're hitting it too high, or you know, whatever. Like we, we, we use our eyes to do that. Well, now we just have the numbers to back it up so we don't, we're not wrong, so we don't misdiagnose what's happening. And I think that's the issue that I have is we're, we're, we're making an argument when it doesn't need to be. So I don't think any good hitting coach buries his players in the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty of you need to be at 19 degrees average launch angle. I don't, I don't think that that's most, I'm sure there are coaches that do that. I'm sure there are coaches that, you know, scream about never saying launch angle because it's a point of pride. But I think the good ones understand that a line drive somewhere between nine and 20 is pretty optimal for just about anybody. Like those balls tend to fall down. And, and so in our organization, we, we have some proprietary statistics that, um, evaluate how hard we hit it at the angle we hit it and the expected placement of defenders, right? So we take into account what standard shifts are these days. We, we take into account ballpark factors. There's a whole bunch of stuff. But basically we say, hey, if you, and it, and it boils down to the old argument that good hitting coaches used to say is, <clears throat> hey, don't worry about it. Just hit it hard and live with the results, right? You barrel that ball, we'll take that. We'll live with, we'll live with the results, right? We're doing the same thing. We're just being able to track it better and being able to evaluate if hey, this guy really does this consistently. 
and our eyes don't trick us in some way. That's all we're doing. We're not training. We don't have the board up going. That was 19. That was 26. That was nine. You got to get it back up. Like we don't do that. It, it is about trying to quantify uh, a range of, of actions that can, if we drag them out over the course of the season, will we'll spell success for our players. That's all we're trying to do. So I would say to, to, to coaches who are using Rapsodo or trying to integrate some of that tech stuff into their program is, you know what a line, you know what a good launch angle is. You don't need to even know that 11 is perfect for Johnny and 14 is perfect for Jimmy because he hits it a little bit harder so he's going to hit more home runs. Like you know that. Get on a field and hit it, and you're probably going to know, generally speaking, oh, that's pretty good. You're hitting it on a line. Or boy, it's top spinning, or you're just hitting it straight into the ground. Like All of those things are still real. You don't need the technology to be a good hitting coach. What it does is it allows you to um, take away your biases, it takes away the guesswork of it, and allows you to typically get to the problem a little bit quicker, right? Because you can identify some of the things that are tripping guys up a little bit quicker. So for me, I, I, I laugh. I try and stay out of it, but <laughs> it, it drives me crazy because it's just an ignorant misrepresentation of, of what people are trying to do who are just, the reason it came about is people are trying to get better. Like we're trying to be better at what we do. I'm trying to be a better hitting coach for my players. That's it. And if there's a tool that can help me do that, I, you can be damn sure I'm going to use it. And if I don't think it helps me, I'm not going to use it. And we, I think our organization is certainly known for being pretty tech forward. And I think probably, I don't know, KG, you probably know better than I, but I think my reputation is probably being pretty tech forward. But I will tell you, I turn the Rapsodo on every day. I do not send them their, their, um, their Rapsodo and TrackMan reports every day. I don't. Now, we, we have them, and I look at them all the time. But I don't necessarily bombard our guys with that. And I, there are lots of times when I say, we're not doing any of it today. Don't track anything today. We're having a, a day where it is purely you're going back to field. Because I think there's, there's balance that gets needed there. And, and I think that's, again, we'll go back to the art of coaching. I think what your players need is what's most and And, yes, there are some certain launch angles that are pretty good for, for hitters. And, and I think there's, there's value in understanding, hey, kid's not strong enough. Yet to hit a lot of homers, so we probably don't want to err on the side of hitting it too high. Maybe I, I but but also you're a young hitter. Like don't fear either one. Like don't worry about hitting a ground ball or a fly ball. Just try and hit it hard and work within a range, and you're probably going to be a better player because of that. So I think the biggest thing that I would say is don't fear something and don't try and um, produce necessarily a, an outcome. Is you're trying to create some feels in players so that they can self um, address some of those those things and, and getting on plane and, and getting on time are real things we just know how to measure them now better than before you know it's it's funny you said that because like i mean it's ob- an obvious debate on twitter you can probably get on and they should just hashtag it so you can go straight to the right debate. now people are arguing about 100 percent, 100 percent. and for me we're I, missing it we should go we should we go argue a, with people right now live feed this thing we could have had a heck of a stream going on uh but i was i was the same way in the, in the fact that i I was, I judged something, the fact that I didn't know about it. And it took one day of driving around on the phone with Kelly. I think my daughter was about a year old and she was sleeping. So I had some time to drive. And he was the one that explained to me like, Eric, it's a measurement. It's, it's a simply a measurement of what you're doing. And I'm like, you know, that makes sense. We've been doing launch angle for the people that are, you know, doing it the right way of teaching hitting. We've been doing it for years. It's just never been measurable. It's just, it's just, it's just a phrase. It's just a term. It It is not, there is no launch angle swing. That's it. That isn't a thing. It's, it, and, and anybody that argues that there is, is wrong. You're just, you're, you're making an argument because you want, you're mad. Um, and I, I, it's ridiculous that we get caught up in that. And so I, I try and stay out of that fray, but understanding words. And, and again, it, it, then it gets expanded to, um, you know, the whole, and there is certainly a segment of, of our coaching community that likes to sound really smart, right? So they, they talk about internal and external rotation and, and hip, you know, disassociation, you know, those, it's fun sometimes to say that because then people think you're really smart. That's not true either. Like those are just words. Those are just terms, you know, <laughs> and we, we found other ways to explain them over the years too. And, and, and I, I would turn it around and say the, the old school coaches that, that get so mad at that stuff is, well, what about the things that you used to yell at your players? Like stay over the ball. And, you know, <laughs> what does that even mean? Like stay <laughs> over the ball? What's it, tell me what that really means. And, and so we've always used words that we understood 
that somebody else might not understand the same way. So if you make that argument that, that oh, telling your players what their launch angle is or talking about disassociation or internal and external rotation and is, is stupid and, and we're, well, yeah. Well, what about the things that you say on a daily basis to your players that they don't understand because you haven't explained to them, right? Or that you just spout because it makes you feel better or it makes your brain think something, right? And we, we all do that. So the more that we can get out of that and say, use whatever words you need to to get your players to understand, that's what matters. Point blank. Nothing else matters if your players don't understand. Bottom line. You know, Ferg, I think you just blew a bunch of high school uh, players' minds with that whole statement. <laughs> I mean, as a high school coach, I know Eric is probably hears this a lot. You too, you know, you get a guy that's in the box and he hits it hard and goes over the fence and you're like, coach, do you see that launch angle, you know? And it's yeah. like, oh, I thought he just swung hard on it. I mean, <laughs> I, I just think about as you're talking here, you know, you really think that Roger Maris, that, you know, walked back into the dugout when he chased 61 and he says, hey, yeah, hi. You know, Maris, you got a good launch angle there. I think you keep that up, you're going to hit 61 this year. Yeah, nobody <laughs> thinks about those things in the box. And, and, and no good kidding coach who uses those terms or measures those things is telling their players to do that. Like, that's not what this is. And anybody that says that is just, is just being it, – it, they're acting in bad faith. So stop it. We're going to go off script a little bit. You got the wheels turning a little bit, talking about the in to out as far as teaching the swing. Um but approach-wise, and, and I know it's a little bit different at your level with just the pinpoint that guys have, at least at the bigger league level, they're going to still make misses, but not to the same as a Division II level or the high school level. But, you know, how do you, how do you take that philosophy of not wanting to miss that inside pitch and, and you know, kind of formulate that into an approach that's not going to make guys susceptible to the left-handed change away or the slider running away. I guess what I'm asking is, is kind of what's that baseline approach? I know you got a lot of advanced stats, a lot of information to put in there, but if you're going to the park, you don't know the pitcher's throwing, he's a new call up, there's no info. What do you find yourself reverting to, to your hitters to be them for they can be most successful in the box? Well, there's two things, two parts to that when you ask that question that come to my mind. One is the talk that we that we just had about inside learning inside fastball specifically as a starting point it's not that's not approach for me that's not what we do in the game that's simply a mechanical um starting point right so if i know that in my my set of swings that i possess that i'm able to make if i know that i can handle that spot if i need to that allows me to then build an approach for the game because i'm not having it in the back of my mind as fearful if i have to build an approach knowing in the back of my mind that that is a spot that I am really susceptible to. I don't know how to combat it. I don't know how to get to that spot. I'm nervous about it and it is lingering in my head. And, and anybody that's ever coached hitters knows that the lingering thoughts about what might happen are the worst things to have in hitters heads, right? Like what if he throws that slider or what if he elevates the fastball or what if he does this? Like I know that I should be sitting on fastball. I got no shot. Like those lingering thoughts are what drive us to make poor decisions. So we start with the inside route simply as a teaching point. I have a mechanical move to combat that, to handle that location. And then we work from there physically. So if you are, if you are, if you set your swing up and your foundation of your swing allows you to get to that spot, you can add the other locations pretty easily, right? It becomes much easier to add those things. So that's a foundational mechanical uh, teaching point for me. In-game approach, we may not look inside all game. Like that may not be part of it. Now, if we choose to look inside because that's the way he's going to pitch us or that's what he thinks he can do against us or that's a, a location that the umpires can or whatever it might be that we think we need to look in there, we can do that because we've trained for that, right? So that's the first part. Generally speaking, from an approach standpoint, we, we start with the fastball. We're going we're gonna to work off of the fastball time. We're going to work fastball middle, middle. And I think sometimes I have changed a lot over the years on, on approach stuff. And I, I think that um, yet is maybe a little too cute in some of that approach-based planning. <clears throat> it's amazing how many pitches are simply right down the middle, right? How many fastballs do we get that are actually middle, middle? roughly speaking, you know, 
And we are always like, well, we got to look away, you know, because, and I've heard that for years, like, well, you got to look fastball away because in college baseball, you know, 70% of fastballs are located away, right? And 57% of pitches overall are located on the outer half. Okay, sort of, but there's a lot that miss right down the middle, right? How often do pitching coaches yell, oh, how do we do that? You throw it right down the middle. What are we doing? Yeah, okay. So they're going to do that. Pitchers are going to throw it there. And there's almost nobody alive as a hitter that doesn't hit the middle, middle pitch the best, right? You ask a hitter, well, what pitch do you like the best? And most of them will say, I don't know, middle. And then the other ones will come up with some line about, well, I like it a little bit in or a little bit off, but they're lying. They like it in the middle, right? So ultimately we come back to that. If we can control the middle of the strike zone, we're going to be, we're going to be in a pretty good shape and we will adjust off of there. Um, we, if we work from fastball timing and, and, and we have some hitters that are really good at expressing this. And, and I love, um, I love the way they talk about the feeling that they're trying to create uh, Brent Rooker, who's one of our, our best hitting prospects, Mississippi state kid, um, put up insane numbers at Mississippi state and has continued to do that in the minor leagues and is going to be a, a long time big leaguer. He's, re he's ready to go. And in probably 20 other orgs, he's already been a big leaguer. And he talks about this all the time. He's like, if I give myself room out front to handle that heater in the middle, I can do some cool things. And what he's saying is that starts him. If his vision and his, his perception is through the middle of the field, and that fastball that fits into that window, belt high fastball fits into that middle of the field visual window for him. And he's on time for that. He can handle elevated change. He can handle ele elevated slider. He can handle elevated cutter. Like all of those things are going to work through that window at some point, right? Those are the pitches that he wants to hit. And he can adjust off of that if he feels like he's on time and working through that window. And I think that's a really good visual thought process for a lot of hitters to think about is there's nobody that, that recommends, I've never talked to a hitting coach that recommends, hey, you want to sit on the slider that's down and away because that's what he likes to throw you with two strikes. So sit on that right? If I sit on that, I'm still out because if he throws it, I can't hit it. And I'm probably going to swing at it anyway, because that's what I'm looking for. I, of course, nobody says that, right? Um, we tell you not to swing at that, right? But that's what he's going to throw. What we want to do is be ready for the thing that he didn't try and throw, right? So again, I think we get too cute and thinking, well, pitchers are not trying to throw it to the middle, right? That's where they end up throwing it a lot because they miss, right? And, oh, they try to throw that change up, but it stayed in the middle and it stayed up. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the guy earlier today, one of our, one of our best pitching prospects is 97 to hundred. He's going to probably be in the rotation next year, 97 to hundred. And he's got this, this pitch, they call it the squinker. That's 94 an hour. And it's a split finger fastball. Like it's a sinker fastball combo thing. It's 94 and it goes straight down. So if he throws Some wild it, thing stuff there, Ferg. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it is not human pitch. Well, <laughs> if if you if you get that pitch and it starts at your belt, it is going to be in the dirt and you have no chance to hit it. But if he throws it at your chest, it might end up at the belt, and now you've got a chance that maybe you get a 94 mile an hour sinker, which is still difficult, but it's your only hope, right? And and so if we can think about what is our best chance as a hitter is to hit a pitcher's mistake in an area that we handle really well, right? We build our approaches around that sort of the convergence of what do we do really well and what does the pitcher do a lot of and maybe where does he miss? What do those two things match up? We're not building approaches based on, hey, this guy's best pitch is the slider down and off the plate to right hand. Okay, that's good to know, but that's not part of the approach then, right? Like that's an elimination pitch because we can't hit that anyway. So, but he does throw the slider a lot and he will miss in the middle with it. Okay, now we've got something. He goes back to the fastball when he's behind. Great. That's something we can work off on now. We're trying to eliminate things that we can't do anyway, right? Ultimately, we're trying to get rid of as many things to worry about as we can as hitters. So if we can get it down to two things, if we can get down to a binary choice, up or down, in or out, fast or not fast, um, those are easier for our brain to process through, right? So if we just say, hey, I'm looking from, you know, my, my chest to my belt, and the middle of the strike zone. Okay. If I get a fastball in there, I'm going to be ready for it. And if I get a slider that fits into that window, I probably got a chance to adjust and hit it because it's up, right? 
And if it doesn't look like it's going to fit into that window, I can take it. And I've given myself license to take that fit. It helps us just control our, our, our swing decisions a lot better. And, and for us, we tend to shrink our, our swing zones with our guys more often than not versus trying to handle multiple things. Like, well, you got to handle both sides of the plate and got to be able to take that fastball, just hit it where it's pitched and those sort of things. But I get that on a certain level of you don't want to just stand up there and look keyhole and everything else is a take. Like, that's not a real thing. But pitchers miss a lot in the middle of the plate. And pitching coaches will tell you that all the time. They're like, we're trying to stay away from it, but it doesn't seem to, to, to work. Like, we end up there a lot. And watch any big league game. Watch, watch the homers that get hit. A huge portion of those are just like, wow, he threw that right down the middle. Now, it was 96 with run, and, you know, I mean, they're really good. But the hitter's really good, too. So if you do throw it in the middle, they can hit it home a lot. And, and I think we just overcomplicate that too many times. So. To the, that was a long answer to your, to your question, KB. But ultimately, we're trying to stay on fastball in the middle of the plate and work off of that with things that will also fit in. I'm, I'm fist pumping over here because I, I had this conversation with the coach for, before me at Kittitas, and I'm going to go super small school Eastern Washington baseball here for a second. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, at the old field at Kittitas, it was a football field, baseball field, and right. we had the, yep. the announcing booth for the football was dead center field. Yeah. And I never thought of it when he would, he was just, Hey, BP, let's see if we can hit it off that shack. Yeah. And I'm like, and I, we were just talking about it. And I'm like, Hey, that was your approach for us. Wasn't he? he goes, yeah, that's, that was the easiest hitting tool we had hit. See if you can hit through the window of the, the announcer's booth. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I almost need to build something out in our center field. Like let's, let's hit that target today. And it's the most simple way of thinking and our hitters. It was just a different approach back then than what we got now, because that was just a game that we played, but we were getting better as we did it. We still do it. Like we have a big, so at the park we're playing in here, there's a huge uh, center field wall covered with ivy. And our hitters will say like, I'm just trying to hit it over that. Like, and they'll have competitions in BP, like, uh, you know, who can hit the most homers off of the hitter's eye, hit it off the ivy and, and they'll put, they'll put money on it. And they'll, they'll compete against each other. And for a lot of guys, that external cue of I'm trying to hit it there, let my body figure out how to do that is a real, contain their their mechanics and, and get them on the right track it doesn't work for everybody like some some kids that won't work for um but it's a pretty common one is to think through the middle of the field and, and think direction and it, it cleans up a lot of things it cleans up starting point typically it really helps to, with direction and extension through the zone and, and, and good finish and 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 you know staying online and all those sort of good things that generally most hitters need that that sort of mentality or that sort of visual cue is really helpful Greg, you talk about uh, picking up window, window training and those type of things. What are maybe some specific things that you work on guys with? I think you go back to the mechanics of the swing, and, and the one thing you talk about is that balance piece, right? If guys aren't balanced. They're going to chase pitches. Their eyes are bouncing. They're going to be off timing, off rhythm. But once you get them into that good base, that good foundation, what are some things specifically you can work on guys to train windows so we're identifying – balls up in that belt to chest or seeing the slider come out low early. Um, how have you found kind of the best ways to teach that? Uh, a lot of variable training. So what, what we talk to our guys about is BP needs to stop being just swing and it needs to be um, decision practice, right? And we, we, use the, we use that word decision. It's not really a decision. Our brain makes a decision for us. It's not a conscious one. Um, but it's an easiest term for most everybody to understand what we're talking about. So what we do is we try and create as many variables machines around. We'll move the BP thrower around. Uh, we'll move arm slots around when we're throwing BP. And you get that anyway, mostly, you know, I mean, most of the time you don't have all your BP throwers who are exactly the same, right? Like some guy's got a funky arm action over here. Some guy's got a bum shoulder. So he's, you know, short arm in it, you know, and some guy's got a super long takeaway. Like every, you sometimes get that naturally, which is really helpful. I think. What you have to do on the back end with the hitters is get them to, to be more conscious of what they're seeing and more, they need to evaluate it more. They, they, most of the time, two things happen. One is BP throwers want you to swing because they don't want to throw more balls than they have to, right? And as an old BP thrower, KG, you can relate to this. Please swing because I've only got so many in here and if things go sideways, I might lose it, right? <laughs> and 
So we start with that where BP guys are like, I need you to swing. And they get frustrated with our guys that, that take, you know, and I had to sort of have that conversation in spring training with you guys. I'm like, hey, listen, you're not going to love this. They're going to take a lot of pitches against you. And they're going to take some of them are going to be right down the middle. And you're going to be like, ah, uh, what are we doing? You know, and this isn't about you. Then. This is about them. So just understand that you're going to have to throw as many pitches as they require. Sorry. Um, but, it, but that's a hard thing to sort of train out is that, well, I just swing because I don't want to make the BP guy feel bad. So I swing at it anyway. We need to be really mindful of what's happening. You know, what did I see there? Why did I want to swing at it? Or why did I not want to swing at it? One of the easiest things to do is if you, if you say the round is six pitches around, right? So you tell a kid, you want to get this kid more selective, right? And you say, you have to take two pitches every round. You get six you get six pitches total. You have to take two of them. What they'll first do is they'll take either the first two or the last two and get it out of the way, right? And then they'll just swing. But then they realize, well, now I, I maybe took two right down the middle fastballs because they were the first two. And now I, kind of, now I had to swing at the, the other four, otherwise I was going to lose another one, right? They'll sort of self-select into actual pitch selection because they'll get away from the fact of just trying to get the requirement out of the way. And they'll say, well, let me swing it to the four best pitches that I get. And they do it without even having to tell them. You say, just take two. You have to take two. Um, you're done after six. So there you go. And, and uh, four swings. So that's a really good way for them to start right away making their own better selections or what feels like a good pitch for them to hit. So then what you can then do is say, why did it feel good to you? Why did that pitch look good? Why did you think yes on that? And then they'll say, well, I don't know. It looked like it was going to end right at my belt or saw it out of his hand really well. And you can start to, they, they can start to understand themselves better. And you can start to understand what helps, what, where their brain is, is, is focusing. They'll also often tell you what they're looking at. Are they looking at release point? Are they looking at the body position? You know, and really good hitters sort of take all of that into account, right? They read body language as much as they read actual ball flight, right? Um, so that's a, a really easy starting point that we, we do is just create that um, sense of variability in there. We'll even do it in, in front toss too. Like I'll just, you know, throw a crummy one in there just to make sure they're paying attention about what they swing at. Because in front toss, they can hit everything. There's no chance they can't hit it. So they, of course, swing at everything. So if you just create some, enough chaos for them, their brains have to engage and have to lock in on decisions. So then what you start doing, once you get sort of a grasp, I think of, their, their brains are switched on to make good decisions in the swing. Then you can start to move those windows around for them to see what different shapes feel like. So if you want to train a guy on, a, on a, how to deal with a right on right slider, move the slider machine way over, like crazy angle, 45 degrees on the inside and it's sweeping across their body, right? Because that's way difficult, more difficult than they'll ever have to face. But it gets them to start feeling what shape feels like, what slider shape feels like feels then slowly move it back towards the middle. And now they start to see, oh, if, I, if I'm going to swing at it, it has to start almost at me. And if it starts sort of in the middle or away from me, I know it, I, will, I don't want to swing at it because it feels like it won't get to me. They start to, to, to self-organize around that, that concept. And then, you know, use a pitching machine and go high carry fastball, right? So set the, set the, the machines up so that the bottom wheel is really fast, so it's really high spin and it stays high or turn it way down and then have it almost create a sinker effect. So they see the way the ball moves and they'll perceive shape and, and velocity perception is, is a big one too. Change speeds and shapes enough that their brains start to record that library of what that pitch, what their brain sensed in that pitch. Because you do this as coaches too, right? You sit in the dugout and you go, you watch a pitch go by and you go, your brain immediately says, oh, it's a change up. Well, how did you know it was a changeup, right? Because you're not standing in the box. You're not doing any of this stuff. You just know it was sl slower, right? You just sensed it was slower. And you're pretty good at it because you've seen a million pitches. Now. The same thing, we're trying to speed up that process with our, with our young hitters. Is the more that they can see the different speeds, the different shapes, um, the different windows where they're coming out of, the faster they can create a library to choose from later on. You know, for, that's so true. You think about broadcasters, you know, how they, you know, you're listening to a game, they're calling pitches. You know, why they, how do they know that that was a, a sinker or, 
you know, a two-seam pass, you know, all those scenarios, how do they understand that? Well, because they're constantly watching pitch after pitch after th basically thousands of pitches in a 162-game season. want to ask you, though, you know, as coaches, uh, sometimes you can get into that rhythm just, you know, like you're saying, step in the box, okay, you get six pitches, you know, here you go. Uh, that routine type, you know, mentality, which then correlates as a negative for some of our players and not getting that selective hitting. How would you correlate with T work into that? You know, I mean, you think about coaches, you like to use T's and, you know, you'll get your guys out there and, and, and you know, in high school, you'll see a little bit more. <laughs> I know right. in the college, you'll see a little bit of that too, but guys will just get in there and just cut after cut after cut after cut. So how can you integrate that with a little bit of some T work? I think the T, I, I don't know. And again, this goes back to sort of the, the fight that we're all having on, on hitting Twitter, but yeah. I think the T gets a bad rap because, you know, there is a segment that they don't let their players use tees because well, the ball's not moving. And, you know, we right. always want to see ball flight. And, okay, I, I get it. I mean, I get the argument. But I would also say there's a lot of hitters that really just need to, to get their, themselves started. And having the ball sitting there so they can organize themselves, they can prepare, they can create a visual, and they can, they can create some repeatability is a really good thing. And so we, we let our guys use tees. I don't mandate anything. Like, guys, our guys can do whatever they want. And if they like tees, they use them. And, and we have probably half our guys use tees regularly and half our guys never use tees. What they do is move them around a lot. And, and I think that's the, the, the most consistent usage of tee work that I really like is guys that will move the tee. They'll start high and they'll do some, they'll do some one hand. Uh, Nelson Cruz, who's, you know, he's 100 years old now and is one of the best hitters in the game still. You watch his routine. He starts with a tee, and he'll set it super high, almost what feels like shoulder level, and he uses a short bat, a one-hand short bat, and he sets it almost at the back of the plate, and he one-hands it into the into the, the side net, and like almost literally parallel with him, like just straight into the net. All he's doing is working good. All he's trying to do is he, he wants a clean move off the shoulder, right? So his setup is really simple. He, he's, he's preset for the most part, and he strides and lets that bat fall off the shoulder and then come straight to the ball. He's very clean and, and, and direct mechanically. He's just trying to get a feel for his body to start his starting point to be dialed in. And he uses the T to do that. He puts it in a very specific location to work a, a very specific feel. And then he'll work it out just a little bit and work a little more to the middle. And he raises it up, he puts it super low. Um, we have one guy who loves low T, like he does low T for 15 minutes a day because he's trying to get in his legs better. So that the low tee forces his brain to go, all right, well, how am I going to get down to this ball and get behind and below? It? Okay, well, I got to use my legs. And so he uses that repeatedly to get himself set for the day and his body moving in the right pattern. So I think the tee work is, is too often just a time killer. Like I need this group of players to do something for a minute while, so they're not just standing there. So the T becomes that, but it's so easy just to give them a routine, like four off the high T then move it inside and low and then move it outside and deep and go the other way. Like just create some very specific movement patterns that they can, they can work off of. And now you've got something that actually fits that. Well, you guys got anything else for him? Kelly and Jason? We unpacked a lot today. We're just talking, solid. sharing text messages during this thing about we, we might have to release this as a two part, two part episode and have a little cliffhanger for the listeners. To Hour and forty five. Jeez, tune back in. Gotcha. Time flies when you're having fun. I, I just can't <laughs> wait until you get on Twitter and look. All the people are going to light up Twitter on this whole thing. Yeah. We'll, have to... <laughs> we'll have to get our fungo banter Twitter debate. <laughs> well, for. Thank you. Uh, that's I'm I'm really excited to break this thing down and and uh, hopefully I know our listeners are gonna love it and just thank you so much for being here with us today. I appreciate your time, guys. I'm glad you guys are doing it and uh, much love for the Northwest and, and my people. Even though I'm not I'm not there anymore, uh, I'll be uh, Northwest for life. And uh, it's it was uh, it's it's just it's a great fraternity to be a part of. So I'm thankful for having me on and uh, all the best to you guys. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. Enjoy the rest of the season and. And Kelly and J or Jason and I will be back to wrap this thing up in the bullpen right after this. 
Hey there, Banter fans. This is Mike Archer from Sela High School in Yakima Valley Pepsi Pack Baseball. And you are listening to Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter Podcast. Go Vikes and Pack. All right, we're here to wrap this thing up. Uh, part two. We just finished part two of the recording. And... Uh, a lot to digest, and it was uh, great. So how about uh, Jason, you start us off. Yeah, guys, uh, that, you know, so good. So much information, and I think for all of our listeners, this is definitely one of those you may want to come back and listen again. But uh, for, first of all, you know, he's, he speaks the truth. Uh, you know, there's no BS with the guy. He's real. Um, you know, and I, I, there's so much to take from this. Um, but, you know, I, I think it gets what I really want to focus on a little bit as we close here today is the fact that, you know, we talk about hitting, you know, I mean, it's great that we have all these data and all this information and all these things that help us as coaches develop our players. But I think sometimes we can rely on those things so heavily that affects our performance on the field, you know, and ultimately, you know, where we're, we're going to go out there and you're going to see the ball hit the ball, you know, and that's the thing is your body's going to react to the, the pitches being thrown. And, and if we have a solid foundation, just like I always tell my players, you can't build a, a you know, a, a good structure without a solid foundation. If, if you do a shoddy job of pulling your footings and then putting your walls up, yeah, you're, you're uh, the rest of it's not going to go together and it's going to fall over, you know? And I think that's the key is you got to have a solid foundation from the down up, you know, and you get the fact that you see a ball, you react to it, you know, and the thing is, is that, uh, you know, and you talked a little bit about on the mental side, but I, I think for uh, most of us coaches and players can really take to heart a lot of the the type of drills and mixing those things up and not getting routine. And, and I think as coaches, a lot of times we can get so much routine and our just daily practices that it affects us negatively on the field. So. Absolutely. And, I, and I, I've been saying that we've been uh... – do we've had some really great episodes uh, leading up to this one, and I just felt like we, we needed one that just dove right into some details of the game and the hitting aspect. Of everything I loved that conversation. I loved the whole thing, but the hit the hitting conversation I thought was great. Overall approach, you know, for the high school coach at our level, yeah, we're gonna try to get kids in the fundamentals of things, but the, to me, that's the first month. And you, there's some kids you still got to preach that, but at the varsity level, you got to get that approach and. And bring them back to the, like I said, the the small school Eastern Washington football shack here in center field at Kittitas and, and getting back to the, the basis of, you know, hitting that ball up the middle and hitting it as hard as you can. And uh, his point to how many times have we texted back and forth, man, why the ball's right down the middle. And it's you see it in the big leagues daily. Watch, and yeah. you see it every inning. So why would we not have that simplified aspect of hitting approach, especially to the younger kids and and I, I just loved every bit of it and, and diving into the nuts and bolts. And Ferg, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on with us. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's been, I, I just am so excited about this thing and, and to have this one at our tools in our hands that, you know, maybe come March or April or whenever our season is next spring to be able to go back on this one. If we ever have some, something we need to re rejuvenate our mind. Yeah, I think for, for me, a couple of things that, that I really liked and, and, and the first one was just that player to coach relationship piece um, about how important it is to be able to work together through something. And, and you know, and we're all guilty of this sometimes that that we want to make things look a certain way um, or, or be a certain way for every single guy and be able to do the exact same things and be able to accomplish the same goals. Um but it's not the reality. Everyone moves a little bit different. You know, one thing I thought about too, watching up until a couple of weeks ago, the only thing on TV to watch was golf and, and you know, that what Bryson DeChambeau is doing and there's another new guy on, on tour now, Matt Wolf, another young guy. And, and if you dive into those guys swings, they are completely unconventional to what golf is, but those guys are the top of the leaderboards every single weekend because it's their natural way of moving and, and they're able to get the job done doing it that way. Um, so, the, and, and there's a lot of examples of guys in major league that do the same thing. I mean, for, for mention it, guys that are pigeon toed or open toed um, where, you know, in, in old thoughts and, and I'm just as guilty as this as the next guy, you have to land open or you have to land closed. You have to do like, 
break the chains of, of requirements for things and, and just understand that, that guys move differently. Their body compositions are differently. Like if they have the bat to ball tool, okay. They've accomplished that goal. They can get the bat to the ball. Okay. Now let's find the way that to make it most effective with, with all the other stuff. Um, and then, and then country, you hit on it too, but just that, just that being task oriented uh, in, in drills and stuff that we do um, to, to give tasks on a daily basis and, and to have some variety with that too. Um, you know, we talked about moving machines around or move um, visual points around um, approaches, different way to uh, approach drills to put, you know, some constraints to the task and, and just see how they handle it. Um, you know, the, the greatest one is, yeah, hit the ball head high off the, off the top of the L screen. If you can do that consistently, you're going to be a pretty successful hitter. But I, I think the more variety and tasks that we can do in, in drills and things, um, you're going to make a better, well-rounded hitter um, because inevitably you, you face that pitcher in the spring that's really good. And, and you guys are going to say, God, this guy's hard. It's hard to hit off of. Um, but if, if we've put enough variety in our training, they're going to be able to eventually adapt. It might take the third time through the lineup, but if your training is built on adaptability, uh, guys are going to be able to adjust in game if if they're used to training in that environment. If you make it easy and consistent every single day, nothing in game is is going to be in that environment. So having some change and some tough tasks and some challenges for guys um, really allows them to 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 bring in that adjustability and that competitive aspect that that really separates the teams that win and lose. And, you know, another great thing, guys, wrap this one up, another great episode and part two of, of uh, Ferg's podcast, a great hitting. Go to www.devobats.com. Check out their bats right now. The great sponsor of the pod. I think that's a, the great mic drop to this episode. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, uh, Ferg, for, for being here with us. And Until uh, next week, till next episode. Uh, to check out our guys over there at Safeguard, too. Can't forget the sweet swag that we got coming for them. So, guys, take care of one another, stay healthy, and let's get back to baseball. <laughs>